It is a rare treat when you get one big picture thinker about the healthcare space. Somebody who can really understand, you know, not just what's happening now, but where the trends are going and, and what it's going to be like a year from now, two years from now, five, five years from now. We have the unbelievable uh, edge of having two such big thinkers in Bob Coker and, and in Brian Roberts. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about their predictions for the next, you know, which they've famously gone on the record about, which is key. That's three, anybody three years in a row. Three years in a row. The first two years were in Fortune, uh, my magazine. Cliff's uh, bitter about this. And I'm, and I'm really bitter about this last <laughs> one, which was on, on another network, as they say. Um, <laughs> But they're all really good, and we're going to jump right into them. I just I did want to reiterate uh, what Unity said. We will be we want your engagement. You guys are the experts. Just the only thing I'll ask is to identify yourselves with your name and affiliation, and and then kind of not make a statement. Just quickly go to a question if you wouldn't mind, just so we can keep get as many of these as we can. But I want to start with one of these predictions, and. Um, which is that you said that this is the year where you're going to get some healthcare IT exits, some, some, some venture exits. Now, is this wishful thinking, or do you actually think yes. that there is... Oh, okay. All right. That's good. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that really describes a level of maturity in the space, yeah. um, that you think that, 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 you know, these funders are ready to get some money out and start investing it elsewhere. I think it, I think it actually... Uh, connotes two things. One is, I agree, a level of maturity in the space yeah. for developed products with real ROI and customers. It also, in my mind, um, speaks to the desire for many of the other large participants in the ecosystem to reinvent themselves, mm. right? So, you know, every payer that's not United wants to create its own Optum. United yep. wants to become part of, partially a provider. Every provider wants to become partially a payer with IT systems. Like, nobody in healthcare, leave aside the pharma folks, makes enough money to be actually happy with their business. Right. Right? They're all float on a good day around break even, right? On huge revenue. So it's not like they need scale, but they, they need different lines of business. And they're all searching. And that, that pull, from the acquirer side, in my mind, mm -hmm. is what is driving a bunch of that prediction. But it's not just about size, it's about ecosystems. It's about trying to, to, to get more than just the sort of uh, the horizontal integration. You need to kind of move across and make sure that all the pieces fit together. And there's things that are big enough now that they're worth buying if you're a larger yeah. company because they're matured to have enough revenue that when you put it into a large organization, you can distribute it, you can scale it, and you can make it actually be accretive. Also with stocks at highs yeah. and debt markets that are really, really favorable, currency is cheap for acquirers to go out and buy things. Yeah. And so, but uh, the, you know, the acquisition targets, though, are getting pricey too, though, in some cases. God, I hope Especially, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's for the it. plan. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, it, when you look at, when you're thinking about, all right, well, what are the next acquisition targets? What do, what do you look for, I mean, beyond just the fact that, you know, there seems to be a commercial market for the per product? Go ahead. <laughs> so first, really, really unequivocal ROI for whomever's buying the product. Right. Uh, there's a lot of things in healthcare that will make us healthier and perhaps happier and have better experiences, but I look for things that really have tangible, unequivocal ROI in that first year for whoever's paying for the service. Uh, second thing I look for are things that a lot of people need to use or are using. 
so high levels of engagement. Because healthcare, as you know, is distract. You're full of distractions. It's, it's hard to engage. You need things that have profound engagement, so you're, they're likely to scale and grow to be big enough. Uh, those are the first two things. So my caveat, yeah. Cliff, to what Bob says is... Yeah, and you guys should um, fight a little bit, too. You're well, friends. We're getting there. Yeah. So um, I'm look, we, we invest in really early-stage formative businesses, right? Yeah. And so actually, if the world likes the business when we first get involved, that's a bit of a problem, yeah. right? Because there's, it's not a mature enough product or team or product market fit to actually service anybody. So my hope is that we find things at the start that have the characteristics Bob described to you, but other people don't see yet, mm -hmm. right? It's a, it's a product, it's a need that that whole either customer or M&A base doesn't fully yeah. understand and want yet because that gives us two, three, four years to actually do something and become mature enough that the market doesn't run away from us. But, you know, that brings up a good question because there are a lot of startup founders here who say, hey, I know this is going to be valuable. I know there's, this is a service that people want and need and that there's a market for it. And I'm, I'm kind of getting in now while there's, you know, no barrier to entry. Nobody else is out there. No competition. Wide open space. I'm going to get there. And then I know that all of a sudden everybody's going to turn up the lights and say, oh, look, he's there or she's there. And, and you know, this is going to be valuable. That involves some behavior change, some uh, mindset changes that are much broader than, than you can control. So how do you, how do you know, like, how do you find that sweet spot where it's still not discovered, but, you know, but it's, it's there? I think it's, it, it starts with finding some early customers that you think you'll learn a lot from. Oh. So a lot of the market turning on the light and saying, aha, I found my, my new solution, comes from early customers that are willing to give you the feedback, the help, the access, the like take a chance on it and let it get iterated through them. And, and that's a lot of what we look for is for an idea, hopefully it's not obvious and not one that's already been discovered, and then there's somebody that we believe will be a good early partner to them. Yeah. And then after a few years of iterating the thing, it ends up being good. Like in the case of Castlet Health, Safeway, way before there was a product, said, well, we wanna, we wanna try this. We're gonna double down and do it. And, and that experience allowed them to build a product that then could be sold and, and, and scaled. And you, needed, you need good early customers. And Brian, you, you talked a little bit about the early Illumina story with your friend, uh, Bob Stuttnagel. Um, you know, one of the, you know, he saw an opportunity, uh, and, but there, you know, a market for oligonucleotides and, and be able to, you know, uh, uh, to develop a, a, a system there that used that, but there was no feedstock. And so tell a little bit of that story. I think it's one of the best stories. Uh, sure. So an early investment a long time ago, because Illumina is now a very mature company, um, that we made was in Illumina. That, for those of you who uh, were out of high school back in 1999, 1998, um, Max was, Max had spun out Affymetrix. Affymetrix was sort of the big gene expression, gene array business. Right. And it was making semiconductors. It was using semiconductor processes to make chips to investigate DNA. Um, and Illumina, and they were sort of the big dog in the space with a lot of IP around the feature size to make chips. And it had kept a bunch of people out. Um, and Illumina's initial focus there was, look, we think we can take a very different approach to gene expression 
reading, which is we're going to make random arrays, which obviously gets around all of the IP of trying to have specific feature sizes, and then use bioinformatics to decode that random array for every specific experiment. Um, the interesting thing about uh, the gentleman, the co-founder named John Stolpnagel that Cliff references is in the case where Illumina became successful, they would need more than all of the world's supply of oligonucleotides. Um, and so early on, they went about trying to figure out, okay, if we are successful here, we're going to need this, so we got to come back 36, 48 months to figure out how do we remove that long pole in the tent. They actually found um, a one-man show guy out of his garage who'd taken an orthogonal approach to making oligos, brought it in-house, made it industrial, um, and in fact, not only used it for their products, but licensed it out to the people who were making oligos and selling them commercially um, and brought down the price of oligos by something like 90%. Um, and so it actually unlocked for them, and even more so once they acquired Selexa to do next-gen sequencing, um, the whole oligo market. And so this is someone who had the vision to see what they would need if they were successful and then go ahead and do that and have the courage of convictions to go and do that and build a market that was there. And so, you know, he knew it was there and, you know, they're obviously proven right in there. Um, I want to get to a couple of the, more of these predictions. One of them, and I, I know this has raised a lot of eyebrows, uh, there will be another Theranos. Do you want to, and, um, and now you kind of cheated a little bit and said. Cheated? We got robbed. You got robbed. I know, we were right too Ugh. soon. All right, so there was uh, a, a company, Chicago-based company, uh, that uh, seems to have fallen on hard times. Uh, but, but do you have any other thoughts on, on if, if you don't want to name names uh, for legal reasons, uh, may perhaps, you'll, perhaps you want to give us the sector where you think this could happen? Uh, no, I, I'd be happy to go after you. <laughs> One of the things that surprised me was when I worked at the White House, I would, I would every day sit in my office and have a bunch of meetings, always with interesting people who lied to me about things that they wanted the government to do for them to make their, their businesses better and, and from their perspective make America better. Um, and you get good at sort of smiling and saying thank you and then, you know, going to the next meeting. Um, I've been surprised as a, as a venture capitalist that I get lied to, I think, more now than I did at the White House by people saying, making claims that aren't true. And in diligence, when you go check things that you, that you hear from entrepreneurs about customers they have or revenue that they have or investors that they have or people that they've hired, an amazing amount of the time, it's not true. Like, literally things that are easily checkable. And there's a bunch of businesses over the past few years that we've seen where, where we've done diligence and, and a lot of the things that were said weren't true yet they've gone on to raise sometimes prodigious amounts of money. Yeah, the surplus of capital is the problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Like we're in what, year six or seven of there being way too much growth capital, right? right. Uh, you know, rates of return everywhere else in the universe are single digits and this growth tech innovation sector continues to provide interesting rates of return. So capital has flooded to the space, right? right. Healthcare IT with you know, the wiring up of docs and a variety of the regulatory reforms has attracted a whole slew of new investors to the space. So you have a surplus of capital and new people entering the space, which is right, it's a situation rife for people investing in things that look interesting, but below the tablecloth, it doesn't look, it doesn't pan out. And we've now had enough 
dollars placed into enough things, right? I, you know, we'll get, there was announcement today that Practice Fusion got bought for $100 million, right. way less than invested capital. Right, right. But, but one thing that's interesting is that companies that have raised a you know, reasonable amount of money, many investors assume that the investors before them did a lot of work to make sure that it, was all, it all made sense. And, and nobody's doing the work in some of these. And so now there's a, a series of companies where when you go beneath the tablecloth, you, there's not a lot there. Uh, and there'll be a bunch of people who will be spectacularly surprised, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, th that happens in a lot of these sort of excited periods of investment. You know, we've seen it a lot. We're probably going to see that in some cryptocurrency investments and things like that. Uh, one of the areas where there's a lot of excitement, some would say hype and some would just say genuine excitement, is, is in AI and uh, machine learning. And this is an area where... I think for a while, I think you, you were biding your time before you were going to say, yes, we're ready for this. But now this year, you've said prediction for 2018, we're going to start to see some significant investments in this in a way that we'll see some payoffs, too. Yeah, I, I look, um, let's use machine learning into AI as sort of a continuous spectrum yeah. of things, right? Where you have uh, sets of systems that... Uh, continuously improve and uh, you know, increase the performance and barriers to entry over time. Um, we, for some set of years, had seen a bunch of uh, sort of the healthcare equivalent of identifying cats on the internet, right? Image recognition in x-rays and radiology and so on. Um, none of those felt super compelling to us from a business model perspective and a scale well, perspective. Some of those cats are really cute, though. <laughs> yeah. All right. um, uh, and more recently, we've uh, begun seeing a bunch of really good work right. that for us is more broadly applicable across healthcare. So one of the issues in investing in these sorts of businesses, like every pitch that people ever come to you with starts out with healthcare is a $3.4 trillion industry and there's this many hundreds of billions of dollars of waste. And along some few sets of dimensions, it is an enormous industry. And across lots of dimensions, it is like 10,000 little industries, right? And especially from a disease focus, right? If you're going to go do uh, AI for x-rays, you need a whole lot of x-rays of ankles, and that doesn't help you at all with, x with knee, knee prognosis or shoulder. Like, you got to do it over and over and over again. And so um, it's that set of applications that are useful across, horizontally across a lot of healthcare that have gotten our interest. So a lot of the attention has been in terms of reading imaging and, you know, radio, radiographic imaging and whatnot. We've seen some exciting reports from Google on uh, diabetic retinopathy and, you know... Yeah, theirs, was, theirs was about the good one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, there was actually a really interesting blog post a couple of days ago yeah. about a guy sort of evaluating all these papers, yeah. you know, and a bunch of these folks don't do any ROC curves, etc. It's hard. So the question is, is there, is there something about, you know, one of the challenges we've got is using it in terms of precision medicine and in, in the sort of complexity of biology. You've, you've written in the past, both of you, that, listen, people are sort of under, underestimating the sheer complexity of, of, of human biology and that it's not going to be solved by even a few clever algorithms and all the data in the world, you know. 
Yeah, well, look, I think the, I think the, the, the uh, application that we've spent a bunch of time on lately really sits at the intersection of machine learning, AI, and voice. And voice. Right? Yeah. It's a different input set. It's an input set that you can be, can be passive, right? You're not asking docs to do something else. And improving both the efficiency and quality of data capture right. for docs could be awesome. Yeah, that's great. Do we have a question? Anybody? Well, and I also say on AI, yeah. Cliff, to your comment, human biology, we don't understand as well as we think. And so I think that the AI applications might be actually less clinical and more on the everything else we do in healthcare, because more than half right. the labor is doing coding, collections, revenue cycle, credentialing, network management, provider directory, there's all that other stuff. Right. And we suck at it too. And so AI can help us in all of those dimensions, and then we don't have to worry about the FDA, reimbursement, harming right. somebody. You can work on all that other back office stuff. And, and I think in those settings, I mean, credentialing every doctor for every hospital like sends a copy of their diploma in. It's like, right. <laughs> there's a lot of ways you can apply technology to that. So let's see, I think there's one way in the back there and I can't really see you, but if you just uh, identify yourself and your affiliation and a quick question. Hello? Okay, Yeah. I think it's good. Uh, Aton Walls from Allied Physicians Group. Um, how do you think the market's going to adjust with the first tranche of um, millennial parents who are going to be forced to deal with a healthcare environment that's not ready for them? Good question. Bob? <coughs> Ooh. I, millennial parents right. who are going to be forced to deal are you with. Change the so, like. Uh, young folks who come through and are used to a certain level of service and interaction in a variety of other industry sectors and they come to healthcare and they're like, whoa. Yep. <laughs> I know another reason it sucks to be a millennial. <laughs> um, don't get sick. I don't have, I, my hope, look, gosh, like let's, every... I hope every, they use telemedicine. Every part of the ecosystem is trying to form more of a relationship with the patient, right? So the payers are trying to reach through the employers into the patients. <coughs> like maybe for the first time sometime soon, a doctor or physician group will, th will think about churn and lifetime value of customers and stuff like that. So honestly, my hope is, is that uh, the, the set of folks who, you know, currently continue to think about themselves as invincible and having no healthcare problems at all, sort of cresting into the healthcare system, will change some of the dynamics of interaction. Like as Bob notes, telemedicine is something that everybody in this room should do as their entry into the healthcare system, right? It's more convenient, it could be cheaper, it'll send to the right place or time, and still, I guarantee you not all of you use it. Um, so hopefully, it will, hopefully it'll push that forward. Well, we see rule changes, do you think, uh, relax and interstate uh, rules on telemedicine and, and start to make this a, a possibility? Yeah, we're seeing, I mean, many states this year have joined the interstate compact to license doctors across state lines. Uh, it's easy as a doctor to get multiple licenses so you can serve patients in multiple states. So I, I think you're going to see more re relaxation of regulatory boundaries. I don't uh, think that's, I don't think that's not, stopping yeah. anything from no, going on, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, the great that we have, like, all this software and you can geolocate people, I like, guess, not frankly, it's not hard right. to, you know, if you're here versus you're in Maryland, to, to route you to the right place, it takes, you know, like, a half a microsecond. It's kind of a pain in the ass to set it up, but, right. but I, don't think, I don't think that's actually putting a damper on engagement and, and aggregation. 
What about in the idea that many, when we start to put software and, algor and, and um, sophisticated algorithms and other uh, com computer technology in medical devices, that they sort of become medical devices in and of themselves. I see you smiling at this like you've heard this. Oh, I've heard that old trope before. Uh, do you think that there is uh, any sense that we'll get clarity on what becomes, is, is your Fitbit a medical device, you know, if it can diagnose atrial fibrillation? Is your, is your Apple Watch a medical device if it warns you of a heart attack and gives you, uh, I know that FDA has recently given guidance on this, but it's not 100% clear where those lines are. I think it's really hard to draw clear lines. And yeah. so I think it's never, no, it's not going to be 100% clear. I think it's going to get, the FDA is trying to make it easier to understand the line. Mm -hmm. And uh, things like Apple Watches, I think, are going to define what that line is because they're getting much more sensitive. For a long time, the false positive on the sensors were such that you didn't want to use them as medical devices because it would lead to lots of unnecessary treatment. They, they were not reliable enough. And they're getting better. And so I think we're going to see the FDA get a lot more permissive on what you can do with them uh, and take an approach that allows you to update the software much more often. The, the real issue has been less that the FDA has been hard to predict, but more that once they said what it was, if, right. if it was a medical device, you couldn't upgrade it at the same rate that you upgraded everything else. Right. All right, we're going to have a question over there if we get a mic over to this gentleman and then to this woman right on the end. And then, but uh, while we're waiting for that mic to come, Amazon, the big yeah. gorilla the big behemoth, uh, what are your, I, I see you've got a prediction here that they're not going to sort of upset or disrupt the, the PBMs, uh, but what do you think about where they're going to play in, in healthcare over the next? Well, I do think they years? can do what they do really well, which is deliver things to healthcare organizations. Oh, I thought so, that was a joke, like whatever they want. Oh, well, they, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think they're going to take on the distributors first, because there's no reason why Prime can't deliver bandages and sutures and everything else to the hospital before they deliver the meds. Right. The worst thing to deliver is the medicines because that has all the regulation and refrigeration and right. all the other issues. Like, there's a trillion dollars of other stuff to sell first, and so I think they'll do it later. Also, the PBMs, while they, they make a lot of money and there's a lot of black boxiness to them and they're opaque, and there's also a lot of other stuff they do, like medication treatment management programs and Part D compliance and formulary design that takes actual expertise that will be difficult for Amazon to do, I think, in the short term. Okay, that's interesting. All right, so that gentleman right there, uh, and then- yeah. uh, Who's got a mic? Ma'am. Yeah. Whoever's, got, oh, oh, go ahead. I've got the mic. Um, hi, Natalie Schneider, Anthem, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, so there's- Blue Cross Blue Shield of who? A Anthem. Anthem, okay. Yep. Uh, there's a proliferation of services. Someone's got to pay for them. Under what circumstances does a direct-to-consumer model work? So when's a consumer willing to pay for a service outside of their benefits? Today in the seven deadly sins. No, 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 that's the actual answer. <laughs> <laughs> Vanity, envy, <coughs> sloth, greed, you know, that sort of stuff today, uh, I would argue, um, you know, Seems like there may be a business in uh, today in trying to help collect out-of-pocket payments that have been going up because of high deductible health plans and sort of bad debt has soared. Um, so that would be the countervailing notion to people being willing to pay for anything. Um, I, I, we've been, I have been unsuccessful at figuring out a direct-to-consumer 
business model that pulls additional dollars out of patients' pockets to date. I don't know. Bob? Totally agree. Yeah. Um, if you have one, let me know. <laughs> if, if you could pass the mic down to a few food down mm. to the gallery. Uh, CRISPR, um, you're less excited about it. I mean, you sort of... No, not, no, no, not at all. Excited, no, no, you're you're no, saying you're, it's going to be commoditized. You're, you're super excited about it. I think it's, it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I think that the notion that, it, that Cas9 has a stranglehold... Right. Right. on precision gene editing will... Cas9 is the enzyme that's used as a sort of guide for the... Yeah, it's the bacterial enzyme that uh, is, is used sort of at the center of it. Um, I think that there's been a whole lot of talk for a bunch of years and a bunch of companies started around and a bunch of IP licensing um, around Cas9. And I think there will be a wide variety of endonucleases that will do different things. Um, for genome, like as it matures, we'll go from just cast line, that's all you can do, to there are five, 15, 30 different enzymes you might use depending on what you want to do. You right, want to right. target this part of the genome, you want higher turnover, you want it to bind but not cut, like all sorts of different things. And so uh, I think it will be a very widely used notion on the tool side. The therapeutic side is a fascinating question, right? As to whether, like, there was a paper that came out a couple of days ago that some large percentage of the population actually has neutralizing antibodies to Cas9. It's <laughs> going to be a problem on the therapy side, yeah. right? Um, and so how that goes about and, you know, what it takes to get to the end game there will be fascinating. And where do you, where do you see the, the, the fruits of, of our you know, of the labor happening now, like in... in oh, better understanding of biology. Better understanding of sure. biology. So, um, target discovery uh, through unraveling complex biological pathways mm -hmm. uh, in order to figure out how you want to develop new therapeutics. All right. A question right there? Or, or Somebody with a mic or no? No? Okay, we've got one right here then. Right in front row. I'm Orundhuti Parmar. I'm editor-in-chief of MedCity News. Um, two quick questions. One is, how can digital health entrepreneurs overcome death by a thousand pilots, where they go from pilot to pilot, but never get deployed? And do you guys have any comments on the CVS Aetna deal? Which one do you want? Uh, either one. You do CVS Aetna. Okay. Uh, CVS Aetna is intriguing to me in that Large health plans struggle to figure out how to differentiate themselves vis-a-vis -vis other health plans to large employers. And many of you have probably had some combination in your life of United, Aetna, Cigna, Anthem. And it's difficult to remember the differences. They have slightly different fax numbers for when you submit your reimbursement. And none of them have websites that work very well. But beyond that, it's difficult to figure out which one's which. And that's terrible if you're a health plan trying to sell to a large employer or any market in particular. Uh, Aetna is a plan that had low market share in all the markets that they're in. So they're always going to a hospital saying, I'm, hi, I'm Aetna, I want a contract. And, and you have less market share than the Blue or United usually. Uh, and so you're taking a higher price. So your network's not cheaper. Your admin costs are sort of the same, and so it's really hard to compete. And they make no money. Uh, CVS has something interesting, which was a big PBM that makes a lot of money in a lot of stores where you can pick up medicines and minute clinics that have a lot of excess capacity. And so I think the idea is you put them together and you hopefully have a health plan that allows people to go to Minute Clinic to start care and pick up meds in the drugstore instead of over mail order. 
um, that overcomes, with some margin over there, that overcomes the network disadvantage that they have that might look a little different to employers. I think that's the premise. The hard part, I think, is when you combine two enormous things with hundreds of thousands of people between them working there, with net promoter scores each that are like five, um, how you make that net promoter score not negative five. Um, the idea that you can, you know, when I go into a pharmacy to pick up my meds, I'm never feeling like they're treating me any nicer than the hospital that's not treating me very nicely. And the idea that you're going to make that into some sort of awesome member experience that's seamlessly integrated and technologically connected to your health plan, that feels hard to me. But I think that's the bet they're, they're trying to make, and it will be interesting to see how it plays out. I think it will get approved. Uh, competitively, they're, they're, they're not overlapping. Like, I think it will deal that goes through, so we'll get to see what happens. But I think it will be super hard on the execution side to make it not, you know, more similar to United Continental than like Virgin and Alaska. <laughs> I think if you are at risk of suffering death by a thousand pilots, you deserve it. Um, uh, every large organization has an innovation team and an innovation budget, and you can get fifty thousand bucks out of just about anybody. And if you start taking that 50,000 bucks, it doesn't do you any good at all. Um, the, Bob mentioned it a little bit earlier, like there's no tolerance for products that don't have very short-term, very hard ROIs. And if you have a short-term hard ROI, you're not spending your time in the innovation group. Like I just stay out of the innovation group. You wanna get into the actual operating business, right? And if you have something that really makes their lives easier, and to be clear, makes their lives easier, like the first three things on their top 10 list are makes me more money, it makes me more money, it makes me more money, right? Whether it's by spending money or interest, like however you get about it, right? But if you get there, you actually have people who care, right? Um, so that would be my thesis set on it. You know, one of your predictions is that Believe it or not, they're going to uh, repair what they can on the ACA and sort of leave the thing alone eventually. Is that you actually believe that, right? You think so? Just so away? I think um, <laughs> the president, you know, has claimed that he is repealed. By the way, this is something that, if you don't know, that Bob actually helped set up the ACA when he worked in the Obama administration. So the president thinks that he has repealed the ACA. Uh, and so by taking away the individual mandate but leaving the subsidies, actually you leave intact all the ACA for the most part because all the insurance market regulations are there, the subsidies are there, the exchanges are there, the, the ACA is there. Um, but without a mandate, if you do nothing, premiums are going to go up a bunch. And that will be upsetting to whoever's in charge. And so I believe that while they will, out of one corner of their mouth, say that they've gotten rid of the ACA, they will probably do a bunch of things to stabilize the markets through whether it's reinsurance or risk quarter payments or funding the CSRs that they kept withholding, that they'll want to do things to, to buffer that increase because actually the government's the one who pays the price. As premiums go up, since most everybody's getting subsidies, the subsidies are actually indexed to your income. And so if premiums go way up, the government just pays more back in subsidies. So it makes tons of sense to do it in administrative actions to sort of fix it, uh, but then not say you did. Uh, and so I think you're gonna see this year in particular, Congress, uh, Camp David last weekend, Mitch McConnell um, and Paul Ryan came out and said, we're not going to do entitlement reform this year or ever, um, which means that they'll probably spend this year silently doing things that bolster the insurance markets to make them work better. I think they'll be favorable to MA and little bunch of tweaks on the ACL program, but they're going to actually try to make it um, less newsworthy, which will be more stable. Right. And so, you know, because the, the president has said, you know, that 
what we would love is see these, you know, the price for insurance is going to go way, way, way up. People's premiums are going to go way, way, way up. And that will ultimately create a death spiral. But in fact, because it's indexed to these, these subsidies are indexed to those premiums, they're going to pay for it anyway, and they have no choice yeah. at this point. Yeah, so, exactly. There's going to so. be no death spiral, and it'll be more profitable to be an insurance company. So it's, it's, right. it's the opposite of what, I mean, like many things, it's the opposite of what he says or thinks. Let's, let's talk about big pharma for a minute. Um, you know, right here, uh, outside of these walls, uh, big pharma is everywhere. They're, they're congregated. They've taken over every Starbucks. Um, they're uh, stealing all the Ubers in the rain. Um, you're saying they're getting, they're getting bigger. They're getting bigger. Uh, so how, you, you mentioned a couple of deals. You think BMS uh, is, is possibly up for sale or will be will gobbled up, maybe Astra? Um, you know... Tell me, tell me who you think the buyer would be. I think the buyer everybody fears is Pfizer, right? Because they're so big and have, and have done stuff. And there was the Pfizer AZ stuff a couple of years ago. Right. Um, the, the, my thesis set on this one is uh, tax reform means people are going to bring a whole bunch of cash. There's a whole bunch of extra cash sloshing around. Pharma has a like right. Apple's about the only person who has more cash overseas than pharma does, right? So there's a, there's a pool of uh, cash available. Um, BMS has always been sort of, you know, not big enough to be standalone and not small enough not to matter, right? right? Um, you know, we'll see what happens with the oncology franchise and whether that makes it a problem or not. Um, and AZ uh, has struggled. Um, and so... I guess, you know, you saw Celgene buy a two-year-old company this morning for a billion one plus five, nine in earnouts. You know, my sense is that's the beginning of this repatriation of cash M&A fuel that's going on. Um, because, you know, the farmers have definitely uh, drunk the Kool-Aid on accessing innovation outside their walls. Mm -hmm. um, and figuring out the focus on the specific areas they want to go on. So we just had, I want to get another question here. If, if so, raise your hand and we'll, oh, we got one right there. Uh, we'll get a mic to this person. Um, while you're thinking of that question or, or about to pose it, we had a bunch of startup uh, presentations here, stand-up presentations, and people were pitching basically their ideas. When I thought, you know, it's rare that you get two big VCs that, the, the golden hands, the, uh, I think somebody, you're on some older small magazine, financial magazine says you're on their Midas list or something. You know, financial. Is there another magazine? No, I have okay. a business magazine. Anyway, but, uh, so, but you'd have been on that Midas. You guys have uh, a list? We don't have a list. Okay, the yeah, list. Yeah. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll start a list now. Really? Yeah. Awesome. You're both on it. Okay. okay. All right. So, uh, but where do, do you get a chance to pitch them? I mean, I would love to hear you pitch them, this audience, on what you're looking for in the next great investment at Venrock. So who wants to go first? Stand up. <laughs> oh my God. Come on, do it right, Brian. Okay. All right. Um, we look, so we tend to be very time frame agnostic investors. So uh, there are a couple of boards that I've sat on for the last 15 years. And most of the time when you guys talk to VCs, people are like, oh, you know, how quickly do you want uh, an exit and what's your pressure to get out? Um, we are in the fortunate position of not having a lot of that pressure. Um, 
which puts pressure on another part of uh, the equation for us, which is on the scale of the business, okay? So we tend to get involved in businesses that we think have some chance at success, but are solving a problem that we see as large and very needy, okay? And the rationale there is, is we're trying to build over time, it takes probably a decade to build a product of any real interest, uh, trying to build companies that will be very large, because that's the only way you can justify spending a decade or 15 years involved in something, right? Um, and so one is scale and neediness of problem, um, and the other is long-term company-focused people. Oftentimes we get involved in things where we have those two things, but aren't quite sure how we're gonna go about accessing the market. So there's a bunch of toing and froing and pivoting that goes on on the exact thing, but generally we're right on the product need. Um, and so those are the two things we don't tend to invest in, because this is probably useful for you, like we don't tend to invest in incremental things, we don't tend to invest in product features, in stuff that's where there are huge dependencies on other people, um, because it's hard for us. Okay, thank you. Thank you, good pitch, good pitch. Okay, we got a question right there with the mic. Yep. Oh. Over here. Uh, Bob Bryan, first off, I love the socks. Uh, and then question is, so I'm Peter Truskowski from uh, working on deep learning at Google. Um, and I guess I'm fascinated by you know, machine learning, deep learning techniques are continuing to advance very quickly. A lot of papers getting published all the time. Healthcare is obviously a slower industry. So where within five years, 10 years, do you see the most adoption actually be occurring within life sciences or on the healthcare side and for what use cases? Of deep learning AI? Machine learning or Mach deep learning, yep. Machine learning, deep learning. Um, again, I, you know, Bob, Bob, it, Bob hit it pretty well. I think, uh, I think you'll see it uh, dramatically on the administrative side, okay, of healthcare, which is a place that's less, less sexy to talk about than, you know, outperforming radiologists and stuff like that. Um, but there's, you know, you, one could imagine um, a complete restructuring of the claims process and the admin process, the pre-auth process, right, by using deep learning, machine learning. Um, and so risk I, adjustment. Yeah, and risk adjustment, for sure. Uh, so that's the easiest place to see it. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't know... You know, you, one can imagine applying it to sort of the whole realm of oncology treatment, you know, ranging from diagnosis to molecular diagnostics to treatment to treatment pattern to all those sorts of things. Uh, the, the sad part, like that's an, an awesome area. The sad part is we don't have as many molecularly targeted drugs as you'd like to have yet, right? Um, and so the, the drug discovery process takes so darn long um, that you sort of that has to catch up to give you, you know, enough choice that you can't do it on, you know, your fingers and toes. Uh, so that's going to take a little while longer in my mind. All right, we've got 50 seconds left, so we're going to, we, no more time, I'm, I'm afraid, for questions. But our last question here is, Think about a timeline for where we are here. First of all, is this an evolution or a revolution? But I'll say revolution and say, where are we in the healthcare revolution? Where, you know, imagine what, what is this, the Pliocene era? Where, you know, where are we? Bob, why don't you take that one? Uh, we're, we're really early. And so I'm excited because I think for the rest of our lives, we're going to continue to see rapid adoption, improvement, disruption, change. Uh, and it's going to keep 
going for 15 more years because there's 10,000 boomers a day aging in for 15 more years. And so we're just beginning to the beginning of the healthcare economic crisis that we'll have, of the demand that we're going to see for healthcare, uh, and things like AI and machine learning and, and all forms of computer technology are going to allow us to sort of hopefully solve problems faster than we get destroyed by the cost. Thank you very much, Bob Coker, Brian Roberts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.